the Seder, what that looks like, what that means. Then on Friday, in lieu of coming together as a community for a Good Friday service, we're doing something called uh, Jesus' Final Hours in Real Time. It's going to be a text thread that we send to you throughout the day. So every hour on the hour, you'll be receiving a message from us as to what Jesus was experiencing in that very moment over 2,000 years ago. So you could be in class, possibly at work, even doing you know, yard work outside at the house. And we hope that when you receive that message, you'll be able to stop and reflect for a few minutes on the sacrifice Jesus made, the selflessness he showed, and the suffering that he endured. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, we have some great services planned for you, 8.30 and 10.30. There'll be no Bible class in between, but 8.30 will be our, our praise team, and then 10.30 will be the full band. We are so excited to celebrate with you the greatest miracle of all time. So we'll have an Easter egg hunt after each service. We'll have Tom's coffee cart out here. We'll have a donut station. We'll have a photo booth. We're going to go all out and celebrate in style what Jesus did for us in going from death to life. And now it wasn't just a one-time thing, but it's something that he can do for everybody right now. So I'm excited for that. We've got some uh, cards in the foyer. If you would grab some of those Easter cards up, pass them out, friends, family members, neighbors, classmates, coworkers, we would love for you to invite the folks that you are around. We would love to fill this space and help people experience the resurrection for themselves. Okay, that was a lot. You can go online. You can also check out social. We'll have all the details for those events. And right now, we're still in the middle of our 14 days of prayer and fasting where we're just asking the church to prepare their hearts and their minds for the, the Resurrection Sunday. It's going to be a great day. Let me pray for us real fast, and we will move forward with today. God, we are grateful for this moment. I'm grateful for every person here, uh, new faces and, and guests, as well as old friends and family have all come together today. And I think that you have a word for every single one of us. Uh, we are all in need, God. We all need to be reminded. We all need to be renewed. We all need to be rescued. It might look different. The particulars might be unique for each one of us, but the truth remains the same. So would you come and do what only you can do this morning? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, well, this week was an opening day for Major League Baseball. Any baseball fans out there? I'm a big Yankees guy, so go Yankees. Don't hold that against me. My dad grew up there. But uh, it was a beautiful spring day. I think people probably enjoyed being out at the ballpark. But imagine if you were to buy a ticket or have a seat at a, a ballpark for opening day 2023, super exciting, and you were stuck in this particular seat right here. Great view, isn't it? You know, imagine that. Or how about this, this seat right here? Imagine if you were stuck in this seat right here. You can't see anything, hardly. See, you can be in a situation and yet not see the entirety of what might be happening in that situation. And that's true in baseball and with those seats, obviously, but it's also true, maybe more importantly, it's true when it comes to the trial of Jesus. Over the years, we have all seen some pretty high-profile uh, trials, right, from O.J. Simpson to Martha Stewart, but there is a trial in Mark 15 that is more famous, or better yet, more infamous than all of the other trials that we have ever seen combined. Jesus is on trial. The trial doesn't revolve around some criminal. It revolves around Christ. It doesn't revolve around some felon. It revolves around our namesake, the namesake of our very faith. So over the five, uh, final 12 hours of his life, and we'll share more on Friday with you, Jesus not only experienced beatings and mockings, he not only was falsely accused, ridiculed, but he stood trial six different 
times. There's a slide up here that, that Kyle was so fast to put up. Way to go, my friend. He was ready to rock this morning. There are six trials in 12 hours. Three are religious in nature. Jesus stands trial before Jewish leaders, Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin court. And then three are civil trials where Jesus stood before Roman rulers like Pilate, Herod, and then Pilate a second time. And in his gospel, the gospel of Mark, one of the four books in the Bible that describe the life and times of Jesus, it's a book we've been walking through together the last month or so. In this account, in this story, Mark goes right to the last trial. He just fast forwards to the sixth and final trial that Jesus experienced. And here's the details. Mark chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law, the entire high council, in fact, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said this. Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Barabbas, or went to Pilate, I'm sorry, and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this Jesus? Or this, okay, I'm sorry, here we go. Here we go. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews? Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priests stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why? Pilate demanded. What, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. All right, so here in this moment, I'm realizing my eyesight is not as good as it was. I need to have bigger font. And I want you to understand there are three people kind of watching, three groups of people perhaps, who are watching the same event. They're at the baseball stadium watching the game, but several of them have their view blocked. Several of them are not seeing in its entirety or in its fullness what is happening in this moment. Several people do not see Jesus for who he really is. These three groups of people are the mob, the magistrate, and the murderer. I want to talk through each of these groups and understand and unpack what they saw and what they did see and why. So let's start by looking through the eyes of the mob. I don't know about you, but I am not a huge fan of crowds. Anybody else not, not love crowds? Like besides heaven, I want heaven to be as crowded as possible. And we're working on that here at University Church. But outside of heaven, I'm going to try to avoid crowds at all possible costs. I mean from concerts to other venues, even to like Sam's Club on a holiday weekend. I just don't like crowds. Like people in my space, in my bubble, germs and B.O. It's just not my thing. I just don't love crowds. So I definitely would not have loved being at Christ's trial. See, because early in the morning, a huge crowd assembles outside of Pilate's palace. And like most crowds, this one starts to get a little rowdy and a little unruly. 
If you've ever been to a sporting event, to a game, where every call seemed to be going against the home team, then you know how crowds start to act, don't you? They start to murmur. They start to chirp. They start to yell. They start to get so upset when everything is going against them. A close friend of mine took his five-year-old son to a Broncos game a couple of years ago up in Denver. And this really questionable pass interference call was made at a very crucial moment in the game. And so the crowd started going crazy. I've been to a couple of Broncos games, and they are some fans up there. They start screaming and yelling and booing at the refs. So the five-year-old little boy just kind of joins in, like, boo, boo. And then he turns to my friend, and he says, Dad, why am I mad right now? (laughs) That's how crowds work, isn't it? Like the loudest person or maybe the most intoxicated person is the one that typically kind of leads the way, leads the charge. Crowds aren't known for using sound judgment or logic or even common sense. They allow emotion and then commotion to be the driving forces. And so they're not thinking through what's really happening. The mob turns indignant. That's the word I want you to associate with the mob is indignant. In response to Jesus, to what he said, to what he did, to what he stood for, to what he proclaimed to be true about heaven and hell, to how he's handling himself even in this moment. The masses can't handle it. And so they turn violent. They turn against him and they turn their backs on God. They start demanding for Jesus to be killed. Like yelling boo at a a bad call is one thing. Yelling crucify at the Christ is another thing entirely. This crowd wants him dead. The mob and the masses are outraged by the message and the ministry, but more so by the man. They just hate the man. And it's sad, but if you really stop and think about it, I don't think a lot has changed. I think the mob and the masses still hate Jesus. Culture as a whole, right? The world at large still does not love his message or his ministry. See, people are still outraged by the fact that God, he doesn't operate in the way that I would like him to. People are still outraged at the thought that Jesus claimed he was one with the Father and is the only way to the Father. People are still outraged that Christ disrupts the status quo. He calls me to love those that I hate. He challenges me to go cross the lake, to cross the tracks, to cross the border to people that I have nothing in common with and would rather stay away from. People are outraged that Jesus will do miracles for some and apparently not show up at all for others. People hate the fact that Jesus focuses more on hurting broken people than on church polity or keeping the peace. And so they just hate Jesus. People still today are just as mad at Jesus for the things he said and did as they were back then. Jesus causes so much animosity in our world because people know deep down that if he was telling the truth, then there is a truth and all of us will be judged according to the truth. And that's a hard thing to come to terms with, isn't it? People don't love that to be true. Like, I want everything to be true. I want your truth to be your truth and my truth to be my truth. May you do you. Well, if there is a truth, if there is a capital T truth, well, that means something and that matters. And people don't love that. 
And so what happens is because people are stuck in, in selfishness, they're, they're stuck in comfort, they're stuck in just wanting things to be done their way, they are sitting in a chair looking at Jesus, but their view is blocked. They can't see him clearly. And I don't want this to be the case for you. I want you to see Jesus for who he really is. You cannot fall into the mentality that the mob has, but we do it all the time. See, mob mentality thinks that I'm in control. When in fact, I need to take a humble posture and say, God, you're the one in control. Mob mentality allows emotion in any given situation to blind you to the biblical truth that applies to that situation. Mob mentality is when feelings like anger or frustration or vengeance consume you to the point where they control you. You're like a puppet on a string and your emotions are dictating your actions. Mob mentality is demanding that God do things your way or God get out of the way. Mob mentality is blaming others, deflecting blame instead of accepting blame for when you've made a mistake. We've seen mob mentality, haven't we? We've all lived mob mentality. We've all been in the mob and had that mentality. It's easier for me to demand that Christ die than it is for me to live out the call to die to myself. So crucify him. Just get rid of him. Good riddance. I don't want to deal with it. Jesus doesn't know what he was talking about. The way of Christ can't possibly work in today's world. Surely I don't have to give my stuff away. I can't possibly forgive my abusers. I can't love someone who agrees completely opposite on every end of the spectrum than I do. That's what the mob says. That's what the mob did. And so what do they do? They just remove the problem. They remove the person. They remove Jesus. They don't see him clearly. And I hate that for them. Someone else who didn't see Jesus clearly in that moment was the magistrate or the judge in this trial. Right? In any good trial, you got to have a judge. And we have one here. His name is Pontius Pilate. But unlike the mob, Pilate isn't indignant. He's just indifferent, which sometimes is even worse, isn't it? You ever been in a situation where you're with a group of friends and you asked everybody, hey, where do you want to go eat? And they all respond with, right? Like, I don't care. I don't know. Whatever, right? I'm going to give you a little advice. This, this one's free. In that moment, I suggest you do what I always do, which is throw out the most disgusting option available. Well, there's a Chinese place in the back alley behind the waste treatment plant. Let's go there. It's all you can eat for $250. Suddenly, people care. Amazing. But you see, this lackadaisical attitude, this, uh, I don't know, right? The attitude and the mindset that your friends have when you ask them where they want to go eat, it's kind of the same mindset that Pilate had when he was asked about Jesus. He's the Roman governor, right? And as governor, he's the one in charge of this entire ordeal. He alone has the power to take a man's life. See, Jews could not condemn a man to death, and they certainly could never kill one of their own. Pilate can. In fact, Pilate kills people all the time. That's just his MO. He's crucifying and hanging people constantly because it's a pretty good warning sign to everybody else. Beware. You act up, we hang you up. That was the mantra of Rome. So they come to Pilate and say, hey, we need you to kind of do us a favor. We want you to do our dirty work. The Jews couldn't do it themselves, and so they push him onto Pilate. The mob is so turned off by Christ, they turn him over to Pilate. 
But it's as if they ask Pilate in this moment, hey, what do you want to eat, Pilate? I don't care. He more or less throws up his hands in this moment and just says, whatever. Pilate doesn't seem to be a bad man. He just seems to be a lazy man. He almost seems to be an apathetic man. He's not crazed like the crowd is, but he's a coward. Pilate is faced with a choice. Will he do something difficult for God's sake? Will he take a stand for God's sake? Will he sacrifice something for God's sake? Will he go against the crowd? Will he go against the culture? Will he stand up for God's sake? And what is his answer in each of those questions? I don't know. I don't care. Probably not. And I think that a lot of us are are, are put in the same situation today. We are being asked those same questions, and my fear is that we're responding the same way that Pilate did. A lot of people claim to know and follow Jesus, but when push comes to shove, when you got to take a stand, when you got to step up, step out, step into the gap, "Eh, I love you, Jesus, I'm not sure I love you that much, you need to be a better husband. You need to be a more supportive wife. You need to be more honest about how you're really doing. You need to stop doing certain things and putting yourself in certain situations. You need to forgive your abuser. You need to love your enemy. You need to face persecution. You might have to suffer. You might need to sacrifice something. Whenever we're asked to do something really hard for God, we're like, I don't know. And some of us are being pressed right now. I know that we are pressed to take a really difficult stand or to make a really difficult decision. And it's so easy to just kind of default to the mob. Like, well, let's just keep the peace and just give the people what they want. Please don't. If you're being pressed and pushed by Jesus right now to take a stand, I just want to say to you, you have what it takes to do the right thing. You have what it takes to do the right thing. It's so easy to be indifferent or or indecisive like Pilate was just going to throw up your hands. If that describes you, I want to challenge you. Take a stand for Christ. Don't be like Pilate. He is almost front row at the baseball game, and yet he can't see anything clearly. He is standing right next to the way, the truth, and the life, and he chooses to go a different way. He chooses to ignore the truth, And he chooses to end life. So if we are in a situation like Pilate and God is asking you to do something really difficult, I pray you'll say yes. I pray you'll stand up and do what is right. Do the hard thing that nobody else is willing to do. Then there's a third person in the stands watching this whole scene. This one is the murderer, a man named Barabbas. The text tells us that every year at Passover, Pilate would release one prisoner who was on death row back into the community. Aren't you glad we don't continue that tradition today? That one's kind of awkward, right? Not sure why they did it. It says that Pilate does it to pacify the people. But wouldn't you know it, on this day, we have two options. Jesus, the Messiah, or Barabbas, the revolutionary, the insurrectionist. He's a hellion, a murderer. He's a first century terrorist. 
And this moment seems so strange, right? It's like, what is happening here with this one criminal and, and the Christ? And pastor and author Judah Smith says it so much better than I could. I want to, I'm going to play a video for you. AFC saw this a couple of weeks ago. Nick stole it from me and shared it with the students before I could share it with you. Get your own material, Nick. But this speaks profoundly to the third person watching this scene. And it's really only when you put yourself in his shoes that you will see Christ clearly. Watch this. We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand. And then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy. This is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus, what has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free? Open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper. What, what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We, we want Barabbas. Yeah, give us Barabbas. They give us Barabbas. The Roman soldiers come up and they put the key in and they unlock Barabbas from his chains and shackles. And he walks down the platform, welcomed by all of his thug friends. Yeah, the people love me. Yeah, that's right. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is, but all I know is my people love me. There seems to be no conscience in Barabbas. There's no record of him turning to Jesus and saying, I owe you everything now, for you have set me free. No, I don't see any of that in Barabbas. God knew that. Jesus stood there, silent, for he knew the will of the Father. He said, it's fine, Father. Let him have Barabbas. For Jesus knew that the Father would have to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas thought it was the people that set him free. No, 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 no. It was the love of the Heavenly Father. I love him. 
and I wanted him to go free. But didn't you know that he probably would have never acknowledged the free gift? Yeah, but I love Barabbas. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son for Barabbas. Even the one he knew would walk away from Jesus and his free gift and never come back. He loves them. And the nerve, the call, and the audacity of believers to think, I got saved by grace, but now that I'm in this deep, dark place of bondage, I better work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin, the sexual urges? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it. No, you won't. You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin and sexual temptation. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own merit, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me and say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin, let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No! God, I'm so ashamed. Give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins, son. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God and it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive. Let me have your sin, son. Okay. When I give him my sin, 
Let's stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, go son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off thinking that we were gonna set ourselves free? It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If his blood is sufficient for your salvation, his blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough. cut my grass yesterday and I shouldn't have done that because I just so much tears in my eyes and don't you just love that though if you want to see the Christ clearly then you can't be like the mob that is upset that he's disrupting your life and 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 causing things to to be turned upside down if you want to see him clearly, you can't be like Pilate because he's asking you to step out of your comfort zone and to do difficult things. If you want to see Christ clearly, you have to put yourself on the platform with Pilate, don't you? If you want to see him clearly, you have to see yourself as Barabbas. You have to see yourself as the one who is deserving of the pain, deserving of the shame, deserving of the consequences, right? Deserving of the death and the beating. That is me. That is you. And it's only when you see him in that light that you will see him clearly. Otherwise, you'll be sitting behind a post and you'll only see Jesus partly. But if you see him as Barabbas saw him, as the only one who could rescue him, the only one that could save him, then you will finally see Jesus in totality. And herein lies one of the most remarkable things in the Gospel of Mark. Most remarkable thing truly in all of the Gospels combined. We've been talking about the miracles of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 is incredible. And the stilling of the storm is, is remarkable in and of itself. And the demon-possessed man's story blows my mind every time that I read it. But you know what's truly remarkable is this truth. In his trial, Jesus didn't take offense, but he came to my defense. That's the most remarkable thing. Outside of the resurrection, this is the gospel. He didn't take offense. Think about that. In a world, in today's day and age, where everybody is so offended so easily by so many stupid things. From COVID to communication to, to if not, you included them in the little community group that you were having. Everybody is so ready to fire back once they felt fired upon, but not Jesus. In a moment where he had every right to lash out, to stand up for himself, to defend himself, to justify his actions, he stayed silent. He didn't take offense. In a moment where he could have and honestly should have demanded justice or sought revenge, he stayed silent and didn't take offense. When he was wrongly accused, illegally arrested, unjustly sentenced to death, he stayed silent and didn't take offense. Jesus didn't take offense, but he came to my defense. And this is not a random moment in the story of Jesus. This is the culmination of the story of Jesus. Jesus is putting on display for one man what he's about to do for every man and every woman. 
This substitution idea, this thought that you deserve to go down there and be whipped and crucified, but Jesus is going to take your place. What happened for Barabbas is about to happen for the cosmos on Resurrection Sunday. And that's why that moment is so important. It's a foreshadowing of me and my story and my journey. So if you don't see yourself as the murderer, but if you are in the mob or you see yourself as the magistrate, then you will never see Jesus fully. He came to rescue us, to save us, to free us, to take our place and come to our defense. Don't be indignant towards Jesus. Please don't be indifferent towards Jesus. Instead, be indebted to him. And all you have to do, all it takes to accept that gift is just a proclamation, a declaration, even if it's a whimper. (laughs) Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. To walk down that platform with the shackles removed from you, all it takes is saying, Jesus, I believe you said what you meant and you meant what you said and I can go free because I can place all of my junk on you. That's all it takes. And you can do that a couple of ways. You can do that in and through communion. When we come and take communion, these two little elements, bread representing Jesus' body broken for us and the little cup of juice representing his blood shed for us, when you take these elements, you are saying, I believe that you are the only one that can set me free. Another way to experience this and to tap into this is to make a proclamation in front of the church. Jesus said, if and when you proclaim my name before others, I will proclaim your name before my Father. So if you've never said, I believe you are who you say you are, Jesus, if you've never done that publicly, I challenge you to do that today. And then in addition to that is baptism. In this moment, this is the only cross we have to ever experience. This is the beating and the death that Jesus is calling us to experience now, a watery grave that we are then resurrected out of. And so if you've never been baptized, I'm going to challenge you to do that as well. If you'd like to do the, the, the latter two, then come and find me as we do take communion together this morning. I hope that you will enjoy what you see when you look at Jesus. Enjoy is a bad word. I hope that you will see it clearly. Don't get stuck behind a pole. Don't get stuck in the worst seat in the house. Don't allow anger, frustration, sadness. Don't allow pride. Don't allow any of these things to block your view of Jesus. See him. See him clearly as you see yourself as the murderer and the Barabbas in this story. Let me pray that over us now. Father, what an incredible story and moment this is. There's so much more happening in this moment, more than we could probably ever fully unpack. But we thank you for the words of Judah Smith. We thank you for the images of the Bible Project. We thank you for helping drill this moment home to us. This is not just some random story. This is our story. That I deserve every bad thing in this life and in the life to come. But you in your grace and mercy and love have taken my place. And so we proclaim you now as Lord and King, but more so as our Savior and Deliverer. And for those who have never made that proclamation, made that declaration, would they do it now? Would they walk out of here free, set free? Make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.